John Mercure and Brian Goddard with you in the studio. Greg Mancic is off today. Mike Spaulding in the newsroom. Debbie Lazica, you heard on your roads. And Sam Butson is producing the show this afternoon. All right. Book bans. They're happening. They're taking place. Menominee Falls recently in the news for banning 33 books at the high school. 33 books in their collection. Waukesha banned a bunch of books not that long ago. Other districts are banning books. It's kind of like the new hot thing that's happening and that people are talking about. It has some outrage that don't like the censorship, don't like the inability for kids to make choices. Mm-hmm. Those in favor of the ban say that's kind of the point, that they're kids and maybe they shouldn't be subjected to some of these things. I wanted to get some perspective. We're excited to be joined on the phone by Jerry Canavan. He's an assistant professor of 20th and 21st century literature at Marquette University. He is with us this afternoon. Professor Canavan, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. You know, there's a long history of this, but it seems like in recent years, it's really been ratcheted up, and recent months in southeast Wisconsin has been taken to another level. What are your initial thoughts when you think about what's happening on the book ban front? Well, I'm definitely in the second camp you mentioned, somebody who is a little bit troubled by a move to remove books from kids who want to read them. Uh, I'm somebody who thinks we shouldn't be afraid of ideas, and in particular that, you know, this is a moment in life when people should be exposed to a lot of different things. The Washington Post recently reported that a lot of these bans are being orchestrated nationally, right? They aren't really grassroots movements, but something more like what's called AstroTurf. Um, Their report actually indicated that 11 people were responsible for more than half the challenges nationwide. So, it's a kind of a strange thing to be giving such a small number of people such a wide berth over what everybody else gets to look at. But there has to be a line somewhere, right? I mean, we can't literally mm-hmm. have any, any sort of book in, in, a, in a public library or in a high school. So I guess it's defining where the line is, right? Would you agree there has to be some line? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's two reasons books get banned. It's One is because they're generally obscene, and one is because they have ideas that are deemed dangerous by people in power. And when you look at the list of the 33 books, you kind of get the sense that it's this is really about the second. These are books um, typically by women, by people of color. Um, they have, you know, dangerous ideas, but they're not pornographic books. I mean, that's a, that's a fig leaf, right? Um, my argument would be, if you're going to take a book like Slaughterhouse-Five, which is the one that leaves off the page for me, my favorite book of all time, uh, it's been a recognized literary classic for, you know, 55 years. The standard for removal of something like that has got to be really high. It can't be simply something that you do on a whim or without a process. Um, you'd have to make a really strong argument to me to argue that, you know, a child or a teenager in 2023 can't read a book that's been read by teenagers for half a century. So in Menominee Falls, the district's new policy rejects materials with, quote, sexually explicit language and or images which may be considered inappropriate for students. It prohibits profanity for younger students, but allows some profanity for older students if the use is central to the plot, characters, or literate merit of the material. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the problem I have with all this stuff is that it's so subjective, and it could be a small group Absolutely. that decides— you know what? We're we're getting rid of this, and the squeaky wheel often gets the oil, and so a small group of people can rise up and have a disproportionate amount of power. There's something also a little bit troubling about 
the use of, of that category of, of profanity or sexual content without qualification. I mean, many of these are sex abuse narratives. They're, they're stories about sexual assault, about rape or incest that are not purient. They're not pornographic. Um, they're about helping people to process maybe what's been happening to them or even identify what's been happening to them. So to ban the books on the basis that they have sexual content seems to me to be missing the point entirely. Um, I was really struck uh, in just kind of poking around at some of these texts by something that the author of The Perks of Being a Wallflower said, Stephen Chbosky. Yeah. He said, it, I, I was sad because when you publish a book in part to end the silence about certain issues, and then he goes on to say the, the censors, you know, kind of want to reinstitute that silence. And to me, that's the part that just that doesn't scan here. These are, these are not dirty books. They're books about serious topics. Mm-hmm. What do you think happens from here? Where where do you see this this going? Well, uh, I, I understand that there is a kind of counter movement to the challengers, right? There's a number of places where people are kind of issuing counter challenges, trying to get the books back in. You know, I do I do hope that this is a moment that is cyclical and that ends soon, and that people kind of come back to the idea that there's nothing to be afraid of in a book. Um, I, I grew up in the 1990s. It seemed to me when I was growing up in the 1990s that um, you knew that whoever was trying to ban a book was the bad guy, right? Anybody who was trying to burn the book was the bad guy. Um, and I think we could kind of go back to that as a, as a kind of baseline rule that um, we don't need to be scared of ideas. We don't need to be scared of our children. Um, we need to let them explore the world and see difference. So I hear from texters whenever we do this topic, and I'm hearing from them now today, that say, look, it's easy to pick out one or two titles that mm-hmm. we can argue should or should not be on the list, but there's 33 titles, and it's a bunch of uh, people with an agenda that got them in the library to begin with, and that some of these topics just are not appropriate. And so the texter said, instead of focusing on, uh, let me, I want to find it here, instead of focusing on Slaughterhouse-Five and The Kite Runner and Kurt Vonnegut, mm-hmm. we should focus on the other 30 that are genuinely offensive. What would be your response to that? You've looked at the list. Um, I, I mean, I think that that cuts both ways. An argument that The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, uh, a, a author who won the Nobel Prize, right? Uh, her first novel is, is somehow, you know, suddenly in 2023, incapable of being read by teenagers. You're looking at people who are, who are trying to use uh, this kind of category of profanity and sex to ban ideas that they don't want to be propagated, right? I mean, these are these are not offensive books. Um, and if we went through the list, I don't know every book on the list, but there's a lot of books on this list that seem to be being banned not because of their sexual or profane content, but because of the politics within them. I think Toni Morrison falls under that category. The Freedom Writer's Diary falls under that category. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Uh, recognized classic of science fiction dystopia, right? There's a television show based on it. Um, the idea that that's a profane book or something that falls under an obscenity clause is, is nonsense. That book's being targeted because uh, people don't like what it has to say. All right, so I want to ask you a question not related to this because I love books. I love when I can talk to somebody who really knows books. This is a debate we have in my family. I've read every John Grisham book, and I love David Baldacci. Very popular authors. They're commercially mm-hmm. successful. Do you think... John Grisham is a talented writer, or has he just been better at marketing himself? I love his work, but some of my family say, that's not really great writing. I mean, it's whatever. (laughs) 
Uh, I didn't come here to put John Grisham on trial. Uh, the books of his I've read I really like. Um, I think there's a certain sort of genius to that. You know, being being able to be that kind of writer that can spread across uh, so many different populations. Um, I'll put in a plug for a podcast I like called Just King Things, which is reading all the works of Stephen King in publication order. And it's it's an amazing journey to watch Stephen King's craft develop and for him to become, you know, the industry, right? Um, so I, I I work on science fiction, comic books, games. I teach the Tolkien class. So um, as English professors go, I tend to be a lot more interested in those kinds of works maybe than the stereotypical English professor. So um, you, can, you can tell your family to leave you alone about John Grisham. I don't mind you reading that. <laughs> Who's your favorite author? Uh, it would be hard for me not to pick Kurt Vonnegut. Um, I really love the work of Octavia E. Butler, the uh, Afri- African-American uh, basically prophet of uh, the 21st century. Uh, I wrote my first book on her. Um, those, those have been at the top of the, of the pile for a really long time for me. Man, it's been fun to have you here. We appreciate it. Jerry Canavan, an assistant professor at Marquette University. Have a great weekend, Professor. Thank you. Uh, you all, too. And, and go out and get a copy of Slaughterhouse-Five. You'll love it.